Hi, this is Robert Furl, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. We want to rightly divide the Word of God, and we want to read it in context, which is what our first question is about. It's a question about inerrancy and if the Bible is always speaking for God. Critics will often bring up certain passages that say one thing and another passage that says another thing, and then they'll, they won't look at context, they won't look at what, what literary style it was, and then they say that God's Word is unreliable, that it isn't inerrant. And I want to answer the question about inerrancy in a moment, but let's just take a couple of examples. For example, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, there's nothing good under the sun. And in Genesis, God said he created everything and it was good. And so critics will say, well, here is a, is a contradiction. Nothing good under the sun, but it was good. But they forget that there was a fall in between those two and Solomon is using a literary device, wisdom literature, to say there's nothing good under the sun. He's trying to say in the book of Ecclesiastes, don't live for anything here because it's all vanity, live for things up in heaven. When you read it in context, you see that there's really not a contradiction. Another thing that people will do is they'll take what someone else says and they'll act as if God said it. Like the Bible is God's word, right? And so, is everything in it spoken by God? And obviously not, right? There's things that are spoken by by David and uh, Solomon and all kinds of other people in the Bible. So there's a passage in Psalms 137, verse 9, that says, let me read this to you, that says, happy, uh, happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rocks. And so I've had said to me before, how can you serve a God who says happy are those who dash babies against the rocks? And it's like, what? It, it wasn't God who said that. And who says that just because it's in the Bible and someone said it, that the Bible is saying that it's right. There are descriptive and prescriptive things. There are things that are describing and things that are telling us what to do. This is a description of what someone said. And when you read all of Psalms 137, you read it in context, you see it's not an accusation against God that could even begin to stand. Let me show you. So it says here, um, this is Psalms 137, 1, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. This is a group of people that had been taken captive by the Babylons. It was brutal when they took them captive. The Babylonian soldiers killed, raped, uh, they, 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 they took every, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. They had done awful horrible things. If you want to know the kind of things they did, you can listen to Jeremiah talking about the things that would happen to them unless they repented and God gave them over to the Babylonians. So these are captives in Babylon by the river. It says, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. And there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. So they made them sing. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skills. If I do not remember you, let the tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. So they're, they're lamenting the fact that they've been taken out of Jerusalem and their captives are making them sing songs of Zion. It says, I do not 
exalt Jerusalem above the chief joy uh, of my joy, above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are you to destroy? Happy the one who repays you. Um, yeah, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. So this is an imprecatory prayer. They're praying that the Babylonians that have treated them a certain way, that they would be treated that way. So happy are the ones who take you captive. You took us captive, well happy are the ones who take you captive. They're praying that God would make someone happy by taking them captive. And because they had dashed their babies against the rocks, they say, happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rocks. Now, does that mean that it was the right thing to pray? Not at all. But we have a little bit more understanding when we realize that they are captives that have been taken captive, that have had their children killed. And in the New Testament, there's a correction given. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Do good to those who curse you, or, or bless those who curse you. Do good to those who spitefully use you. So we know we're not supposed to pray that these things would happen. And th this is more of a statement anyway, but still, who's to say it's right? We're not saying that the Israelites who had been taken into captive were right for saying, I hope this happens to you, because that's what they're saying. And God certainly didn't say it. So the next time someone says something like, how can you serve a God who would, would say, happy is the one who smashes your baby against a rock, and you can go, that's not what God said. Just because it's in the Bible. The Bible is telling us accounts of different things that happen and different things that people said. And often the contradictions that they bring up, and there are people who will make a statement out of context just because they know that it makes the Bible look foolish and they're not being honest. They are not honestly handling it. Now, how does this deal with inerrancy? Because we believe that the Bible is inerrant in the truths that it teaches. We know that there are, for example, 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, and they have variants in them. There are differences that are in them. And so when we say it's inerrant, well, which one of the manuscripts are we talking about? We're talking about God's Word put together from those manuscripts and delivered to us in different versions. The ESV, the NIV, the New King James. And that it is inerrant, well, they're all different. So what do we mean by that? We mean in the truths that it teaches. Even critics will say that, that textual criticism is able to get back to what the New Testament originally had written. That's how much information that we have, how many variants we have, that we can be confident in the reliability of the Bible. And that's what we mean when we say it's inerrant. It doesn't mean that there aren't significant variants in the manuscripts, because there are. And when you first learn about this, it can be a little shocking. It, it can be like, you're like, well, there's variants in the manuscripts? Yes, they're not all identical. God gave us the word in a very earthy way, meaning people wrote it in their personalities, with their misspellings, and, and hearing and inspired by God to be sure, but in their own manner they wrote it. And then people copied it with their own errors and misspellings and copied it and copied it and copied it. But it's not like the telephone game where you whisper in an ear and you whisper in the next person's ear and then it's, it's changed down the road. They're able to have copies they're comparing and checking it with 
And when the book of Isaiah was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, 2100 years ago it was dated to, 100 years before the time of Christ, when the oldest copy of Isaiah we had before that was 700 years before the time of Christ. That's a big difference. And when they compared the two, they found that there was no significant changes. Yes, there were variants, different spellings, different words that were used, but the, tr the, the truths that were taught in it were all kept intact. Nothing that changed in the wording or the sentence structure or the spelling or how words were used changed anything significant as to the teaching from the book of Isaiah. And the important passages were there. Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So we can have confidence, even though the Bible didn't come to us floating down from heaven with a ribbon hanging from it, right? Oh, there's the word of God that's come to you. No, it came through people, and it came through people copying manuscripts, and then textual critics, which is a, a job, it's something people do, not only for the Bible, but for any ancient manuscript, brought it all together. And so we can trust in what God's word says. But context is important. Next time somebody tells you something about the Bible, the first thing to do is to go look it up in context. That's why we say context is king. And no, God did not say happy the one who takes and dashes your little one against the rock, the rocks, that are, or the rock. God did not say that. That was Israelites who were in captive in Babylon, and, you've, and it doesn't mean what they said were right. And the Bible is not lifting them up or condoning what they say at all. And this is very important for us to understand. All right, so good to see you guys. Good to have you uh, with us. Uh, and uh, if you have a question, you can write the word question and then write out your question, reread it, make sure that it makes sense, then go ahead and submit it and also add in any references that you have and uh, we'll be able to take a look at uh, the references and get them up on the screen for you to be able to read, all right? So Paul McGuire has a question. He's got the first one today. Paul says, how can I tell God's hand is against me and I'm afflicted or, or if, or is it, the devil attacking me? Or am I just going through trials and tribulations? Yeah, Paul, uh, this is something that we all have to deal with. There are, you know, Job said, as the sparks fly upward, man was made for trouble. And all of us have difficulties. The Bible even tells us that we are to consider it joy when we encounter various trials. The Bible tells us, don't think it's strange when you have fiery trials that come upon you. God uses those things in our lives. God can bring about, even from things that are, are bad, difficulties, God can bring about good from them, right? God uses all things to work together for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so, how do I know if something that's happening to me is a consequence of sin, if it's the enemy attacking me, or if it's just something that happens because I'm a human. Now, the answer to that could be that you might know. You may be able to tell when it's a consequence of sin, right? Something that you've done, then there are consequences that come from that. You tell a lie at work and you lose your job. That's a consequence, it's not an attack of the enemy. It's a consequence of something you did. Uh, you may, it may be the enemy attacking you and God may be using it like he did with Job. God allowed Satan to attack Job, but God had his plan in it. And when Job was questioning God, I wish God were a man that I could set him down and ask him what's going on. 
Later on, God said to him, Now you sit down, and I'm going to question you. Where were you when I created the worlds? And the morning stars sang together. And Job's like, what, what? I didn't even know there were morning stars. Where were you? Uh, can you stand against the Leviathan? And God just brings all of these questions to Job, and Job realizes how much he doesn't know. And who are we to question how God does them? So here's what, what I do, Paul. Uh, when something is happening in my life, I do spiritual warfare. When something negative is going on in my family or my own life, I pray that God would bind the enemy in the name of Jesus. That if the enemy has any influence here, Lord, that you would stop him in the name of Jesus Christ. So I'm very deliberately asking the Father in the name of Jesus to stop the devil, the, the demonic forces, whatever may be at work, to stop. So I do pray that. And I pray that for people I know. I pray that for people I know that are struggling, that are going through difficulties. Sometimes it's easier to see that it could be the devil's hand, right? It may be some sin in someone's life that you're praying for that they might not even see. And you know that there's a spiritual battle taking place. Or it might be that they're just sick and you don't know. So I would pray that God would, that Satan would not be able to use it, again, very deliberately to the Father in the name of Jesus. And I also ask God to help me to be able to grow and to rejoice in struggles. Because I'll admit to you, when difficulties come my way, I don't do what James 1 says. Not very often. I would like to. I would like to go, okay, this is various trials that I'm facing. I'm going to rejoice in this. I'm not going to think it's strange that there's fiery trials. It doesn't mean we can't ask. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the doors will be open to you. So it doesn't mean that we can't ask for God to be able to, um, for God to be able to remove something that we're going through. But the real truth of it is, Paul, that I don't know that there, we might have ideas and, and depending on the situation, you can definitely tell when it's an attack sometimes. You can definitely tell when it's a consequence sometimes. You can definitely tell when it's from God sometimes or when it's just happening because you're human. But a lot of times you don't know. You're just in the midst of it and you don't know. And I think it's good. It's not going to hurt to pray a spiritual warfare kind of a prayer. Asking that God would take care of the situation, that God would handle it. Um, and I don't know that we need to know. Because tribulations, trials, tribulations are going to come our way. Jesus said, you know, you use the word tribulation here. In this world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. We're going to have trials and we're going to have tribulation and some more than others and, and seasons, right? Seasons of life as well. Sometimes there's seasons where we don't have many trials and other times there's seasons when we do. And we can learn to really cherish the seasons when we don't have a lot of trials. But God does use them. We're told that he does. Uh, we also know that God's building character in us and God's disciplining us. So if it's discipline, then we can get something taken care of. And when trials go come our way, difficulties come our way, then maybe we should become introspective. Is there anything that I need to look at? Could God be disciplined me as a father who loves me, who wants me to get these things out of my life? Then we can ask, what do I need to change, Lord, that we may be able to really look at it? All right. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. And um, if you have a follow-up on that, I would love to, to take that follow-up too, okay? 
So we have a question from Jari. Jari says, if God doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle, which is 1 Timothy 10, 17? No, 1 Corinthians 10, 17? Um, uh, that says God's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. Why are there significantly proven gender disorders like AIS, which I don't know what AIS is, um, seems like homosexual temptation is hard. I think any sexual temptation is hard. And I can tell you over the years, I've had people ask me, why is, is, is especially sexual temptation so hard? Why is the, the sex drive so hard? And now the answer to that is, is that God wants us to desire our spouse. Just because something is hard doesn't mean it's beyond your strength. And someone that has same-sex attraction uh, as a temptation, that may, be, that may be really hard. But someone who has you know, opposite sex attraction, it can be really hard for them as well. And a disorder, and I'm not sure what that disorder is, okay, AIS, um, but sometimes people do have disorders. And God knows our weaknesses and God knows our strengths. And so if there is a disorder that someone has that doesn't allow them to be able, that doesn't allow them like OCD, where something gets stuck in their mind and they just can't stop thinking about it. And if it's something that is a sinful statement or, or a sinful word that got stuck in their mind, uh, God knows their weaknesses. God knows their limitations. God understands that. But I do believe that God provides a way of escape, which is what that passage also says as well. Let me see if I can find this really quick. Um, because the, the passage is a really good passage that really helps us. Um, was it 1017, I think? Let me see. Nope. Um, I'm not sure. Let me see if I can quote it. I'll quote what the verse is, Jari. Um, it says... Um, Ah, it's talking about temptation. It says, um, uh, I can't remember it exactly, but it does talk about God providing a way of escape. God will not let us be tempted beyond our strength, but will also provide a way of escape. So it's not just that, that God's not going to be able to let us be tempted beyond it, but there's a way of escape. And sometimes if we don't go the way of escape and we give in to the temptation, we haven't even maybe even faced the brunt of it, the entirety of all of the um, of all of the temptation. So yeah, because tempted not beyond what you can bear doesn't mean it's not gonna be hard. It it can be hard as well. All right, Jari. So so good thoughts there. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Steve. Is it Wolkowski? Steve says, um, "What does it mean to believe?" Let's find the Lord's truth and sharpen together. And, sh and sharpen together. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Steve. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, what does it mean to believe? So, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So, right there's a promise of everlasting life in believing in Jesus. Now, it means more than just believing that Jesus existed, Right? Because, well, the devil believes he existed. The devil believes in a lot of things. 
So it takes more. It's not saying if you believe he was there. Now we know in Romans chapter 10 that it has been added that if we, let me get there and, um, and look at it. I think it's 10.10. Um, I'll get to the right one this time. Yeah, let's go. Uh, let's go back a little bit. We'll start in verse 9. Let me bring this up. Let's start in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And remember, faith is connected to believing. You trust. You walk by faith. That if we confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, believing in the resurrection is key. Now, if God created the world, if you believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the world, then he could raise someone from the dead, he could cause a flood, um, he could cause a man to survive, or to be resurrected out of a whale, which is, is, is a possibility that he didn't survive inside the whale, but he actually died. And when you read the book of Jonah, you could actually get that, because he talks about being in the, in the depths of hell, of Hades, which a whale's stomach could be Hades as well. Um, he says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is over all. So there in Romans 10, after Romans 9, we're being told that Jew and Greek are saved by believing. So it is, it is by believing that we are saved putting our trust in him to trust on and rely which is which is what believing believe means um, if we take a look here at where let's go back to verse verse 9 um, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead I'm going to see if I can pull up the amplified version um, yeah let's see if that helps a little bit here it says um, because if you acknowledge and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, recognizing his power, authority, and majesty as God, which is what being his Lord is, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it doesn't really add anything to believe there. Um, in other places it does, to believe, trust on, and rely, or to believe in, trust, rely on. That is what believe means. So it obviously is trusting him. And trust is probably the best way for us to understand it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would trust in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You're trusting in him for your salvation. You're receiving him. John 1.12, as many as receive him, he gives the power to become the child of God, even to those who believe in his name. So you believe in him, but you receive him. And when you receive him, you become a child of God. Now, there are those who like to make fun of someone receiving Jesus as their Savior, saying that that melted down to this little clippy phrase in which someone could get saved, but it is perfectly descriptive of what salvation is. I received Jesus as my Savior. I invited him in. I received him, and I was saved. He's my Savior. I received Jesus as my Savior. And even though people will criticize that, and even when someone says, I received Jesus into my heart as my Savior. Now, I don't know, biblically you can't find something where it's received into the heart, but let's not be hypercritical. We understand what they're saying. We know they're saying, I, I, I brought him into the very essence of who I am, into my heart, I invited Christ in. So we become hypercritical 
and um, and criticize people for saying things like that when it's incredibly accurate to say that and to believe. All right, Steve. So thank you very much for the question. I appreciate it. A good opportunity uh, to be able to let people know how you can invite Christ into your life, how you can be saved, how you can find him and have your life completely transformed. So we have another question from, is it um, Dan, Daniela? Daniela, question, I'm curious of what extent do you obey authority as far as government goes? The Bible, in the Bible, a lot of what government is doing is sinful. Should we obey or not? Or should we obey or, okay. So thanks, Daniela. Um, yeah, that's really a good question. Um, Paul and Peter talked about it. So Paul in Romans 13 and Peter, I'm trying to remember where Peter's is. Peter says almost the same thing. Um, but let's go ahead and take a look at this here, Daniela. It says, um, it says, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Now remember, the governing authority, when Romans was being written, was to the Romans who were living in Rome that had the emperor on the throne, which could have been a strange emperor, right? And so, um, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Which doesn't always mean it's good authority, because sometimes God allows people to rule over people as a punishment even. Granted by his permission. Oh, I'm still I'm still in the Amplified. Let me get over to the New King James. Alright, let um let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. So if you're doing good, you don't have to worry about it, but to evil, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister. Literally, he is God's servant. So those that are in authority are God's servant to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must subject, uh, be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for they are God's ministry attending continually to you in this very thing. Render therefore all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to hon who honors due. Okay? So that's pretty clear biblical direction, Daniela, on, on how we're supposed to submit to authority. Now, when do I not submit to the authority? When Peter and John had healed the man in the name of Jesus Christ, the Sanhedrin, who didn't believe in the resurrection, now had a man healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that had been resurrected. They warned them not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, if it's right for us to obey God or man, you be the judge. But we cannot do but do what God has told us. So basically, we've been told to preach in the name of Jesus, and we're going to do it. So when the law crosses the line and asks you to do something 
that is un, that that is unbiblical that makes you a bad christian i heard someone say when the when the when the law asks you to do that then that's the line that you draw it's the same thing with a husband with a family authority it's the same thing with um church authority when a church starts to ask you to do something that is unbiblical that's when they've crossed the line and we will obey god rather than man but as far as the laws that they pass paying taxes to them even though they're ungodly they god we're no longer under a theocracy that was the old testament now god backs government up and we have police officers that are there for us to help us from those who do wickedly and so we see that we are supposed to be subject uh, to all of those authorities and not when they ask us to cross the line and to begin to do something that um, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to do or not supposed to do. All right. So thank you very much, Daniela. I appreciate that. Good question, by the way. Um, and so we have a, a question from Stephen. Stephen says, do the millennial believers ever get a glorified body before the new heaven and earth and eternity begins. I don't believe so. Um, there is a there is a resurrection at the end of the millennium, and it's called the first resurrection. Jesus is the first part of the first resurrection. Then there's a resurrection of saints that happen. Some believe before the tribulation period. Some believe in the middle. Some believe in the end of it. But there's a resurrection, and there's a judgment. And then those who live in the millennium live and die and are buried and they're living under Christ and his rule. And at the end of the millennium, the devil is let go. Havoc is wreaked. He finally destroys the devil or catches him, has the devil chained or has the devil put into, into hell with the false prophet and the beast. And then there's a resurrection of all of the living, all of the dead. And then that's then there's a resurrection um, of, of the, that is called the second death in Revelation. I was trying to think of exactly the way it's worded, but it's called the second death. And these are the people that are judged. The books are opened and they are judged in that point. So, yeah, they if if they're living for Christ, they'll get a glorified body at the end of the millennium. But if they're not living for Christ, then they won't get a glorified body. They'll be they'll be judged in you know whatever the state is in the state of hell whatever the state of a person is in the state of hell it's not a glorified body that god doesn't give them a glorified body and then go to have them be in torment it's um it's it's something that's different okay so thank you stephen i appreciate the question again good good question um it's just um and we're in the book of revelation now on wednesday nights and we're at chapter where are we at now? Chapter 13? Or the end of 12, I guess? The end of 12? So we're right in the middle of some really good stuff. But we're going to get to the whole thing with the millennium and all of that um, as we continue on within the next uh, couple of months. We'll be doing that. All right. So we have a question from Psych Man. Psych Man, good to see you. Uh, do you think Christians grow more contrite as they mature and better understand the conditions of their impoverished spirit. I definitely do. I, I definitely think that there's so much to learn when we become a Christian. So much for us to learn about ourselves. 
And um, I remember when I first got saved, I used to think, how can anybody fall away from God? That's so ridiculous that anybody would fall away from God. Then certain things happened in my life and I walked away from him for a year. And that's a humbling thing. The Bible says, be careful when you think you stand lest you fall. And so we all learn to be more contrite. We all learn um, to, to be more humble. And this is what God asks of us, right? God says, um, this is what is required of you, O man, that you love mercy, that you do justly, and you walk humbly before your God. That's what God wants from us. And so the more we grow in him, the more we learn, the more we learn what humility looks like, the more the Holy Spirit convicts us when we are prideful about something. And so God's able to bring in that correction into our lives. So yeah, I think all kinds of things change in us, but certainly humility is one of those things. Um, we've almost got to walk our way through it, into it, because we realize that we are not we, we put a lot of trust in ourselves. We think that we're really special, but we end up knowing, you know what? I got problems and I really need God's mercy. And that's why I want to be merciful to others because we need God's mercy. All right. So Paul is asking a follow-up question. Paul says, follow-up. I know many Catholics that believe in Jesus, but show no sign of having the Holy Spirit. It is as though they have faith, but not a saving faith. Why? Is it because they believe added things? Uh, so yeah, so a Catholic, Greek Orthodox, um, they have all the pieces they need to be able to be saved. So if they believe in Christ, they believe in the resurrection, they believe in the virgin birth, but if they trust in religion, or in the sacraments, then they're not saved. So just like there are people in Calvary Chapel that are not saved, they go to church, they act like it, but they haven't made a genuine commitment to Christ. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is gonna enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so we have to be careful. We have to look at, you know, am I, have I really made a commitment to Christ? Am I really following after him? And not just not just the Catholic Church. Um, I, we talked about the Church of Christ that teaches baptismal regeneration, that the miracle of salvation happens when you are baptized. And so if someone is trusting in baptism to be saved, then they're not saved. But if they're trusting and believing in Christ, they are saved. Now, the truth about a lot of Catholics is they don't understand what's being taught by the Catholic Church. And because the Catholic Church has the ability to change doctrine, a lot of times the Catholic Church disagrees with what the leadership, even the Pope uh, in the Catholic Church is saying. They just don't understand. They just don't even know. So, yeah, I don't know that I would, I would pick them out. I guess I would um, above a, um, a born-again Christian because a, a born-again Christian has put their faith and trust in Christ realizes I've been saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, by the, by the grace of God, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so I guess I would say that. But there are those who claim to be born again who are not born again because they haven't really put their trust in Christ. Even though, 
they act like they have, they have not put their trust in him. So, uh, yeah, good follow-up. Um, they have all the pieces that they need. Uh, so it's 1 Corinthians 10.13 was the passage that we were looking at from Jari's question. Thank you for giving me that reference there, uh, Deirdre. So I'm going to go there. Uh, first, uh, was yeah, First Corinthians ten thirteen. I'm in thirteen. Okay, First Corinthians ten thirteen. I want to us to take a look at that and consider a little bit more. We're talking about certain temptations that may be harder than other temptations. I put it up on the screen here. So um, let's just go back to verse twelve. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Hey, it's a verse I just quoted. That's First uh, Corinthians uh, ten twelve. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. So what he's telling us about temptation is that we're all in this thing together and it's common. And if somebody says, I don't get tempted, then they do. And some people are able to handle temptation and some people aren't. And so why would some not be able to handle it? It says God is faithful who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The idea of bearing it there is that it's hard. Temptation is hard. Uh, sexual temptation is hard. It's, there's, there's, there's difficulties that we have with temptation, and so much so, the Bible says if anybody says they don't have any sin, they're lying. Paul said, the very things I want to do, I don't do. There are things I don't want to do. Those I end up doing, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, there's some debate as to whether or not he meant that before or after uh, he was saved, that struggle that he had. But I think, it, I, think I, I, I read it as after. In Galatians, there's the same struggle. The flesh struggles against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that I don't do the things that I want. So it's the same kind of a struggle. And if we sow to the flesh from the flesh, we'll, we'll reap corruption. We sow to the spirit from the spirit, we'll reap life. So that if we delight in the Lord, He'll give us the desires of our heart. If we're delighting in the world, our desires are going to be for the world. And so when it comes to temptation, a lot of times we have intensified that temptation by the things that we are looking at, by the things that we're watching, by certain things in our lives. That's why we want to do, Paul, Paul talked about and the Bible talks about, doing things that edify us. So what kind of things am I listening to? Is it edifying? What kind of things am I watching? Is it edifying? Is it helping me? Is it going to help me to be able to face temptation and to win? I, um, I do appreciate that. Thank you very much, uh, Deirdre. All right. Thank you for uh, bringing that up. I appreciate that. I wanted to be able to, to go over that because it really does say a lot. <laughs> so Psych Man says, what if you're arrested? and you're tempted uh, to just sin in prison, would God provide an escape? And yeah, then he gives, yeah, then it, that's a joke. That would be, yeah, that's just funny. All right, um, so we have a question from Stephen. I think it's, uh, I think it's another Stephen from our last Stephen. Is it okay to study another religion's, another religion or religion's text? If so, is it okay to pull wisdom and teaching from them? Yes, it's okay to read the Book of Mormon, uh, Doctrine of Covenants, uh, the, um, the Quran. 
the more you can learn of what they say, the better off you're going to be in, in able to interact with them and talk with them. So yeah, it's okay. Can you pull wisdom from them? Um, I would think that there would be something in the Quran that would be edifying, that would be that would have wisdom. There's a lot of things that don't. I would assume there's something in Doctrine of Covenants that would be good and edifying. Now, it's hard to say that about something that is a false gospel, right? Uh, so as we read them, we want to read them for what they are. We want to know what they are and how we are, how we're supposed to respond to what they believe, certainly. Um, but yeah, it's okay to, to read them. In fact, I think it's, I think it's good. I think it's good to know what they say, uh, to do some, some research. Um, I've never read the Book of Mormon, um, so I don't know what there might be in there or what there might not be in there. Okay? Um, so Paul says, uh, so Paul's talking about the millennial still. So what bodies do we get for a thousand years? If we get the same, then we will need spouses for those thousand years. So do we marry during those thousand years? Imagine married for a thousand years. Uh, careful. Um, all right. So, Paul, for those of us who are saved now, we are going to be resurrected and given glorified bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay, we're going we're gonna to meet the Lord in the air. Those who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air. This corruptible will put on incorruptible. Some will be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. Some are not going to die. Those are all rapture passages, even though people deny that there's, there's ever a rapture, that the rapture is not taught in the Bible, which is just drives me absolutely crazy because the Bible says, I should be able to tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, but some are going to be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. Wherever you put Jesus returning for his church and then coming to the earth, you have a resurrection and the dead in Christ rise first and then those who are alive and remain are changed. And so we will go into the millennium with our new glorified bodies. And we will be like those Jesus talked about that are like angels, neither married nor are given in marriage during that time. But the people who are alive, the, the Israel that was, was hidden in the wilderness for, for three and a half years until Jesus returns, uh, people, the Gentiles who would believers that, that survived, then they'll have offspring. And they'll live during that thousand years. So it's not us. It's, it's them. And it may be some, of, some who don't really make a commitment to Christ now, but they may go into the tribulation period, end up really getting saved, and maybe survive it. The flesh will become rare on the earth, so very few are going to survive. But there could be some that survive, and probably will be, and um, they will go into the millennium, and uh, they'll live for you know, for a lot of years because the Bible talks about them living longer um, in the midst of the millennium, okay? So hopefully that's just a little clarifying. It's not that we don't get our glorified bodies until the end. Condition when a person. Ah, okay, well, um, Jari is clearing up here what AIS is. Follow-up, Matthew 9, 12. Some are born eunuchs, meaning... And AIS is a condition where a person is genetically male, 
has one X and one Y chromosome. Yeah, so there are, um, let's just talk a little bit about this um, here, Jari. There, there are defects that happen where someone is both male and female. They are obviously rare, but they do happen. And that, there are decisions that have to be made with that. The parents have to make a decision at some point. And, and surgery is done at times, sometimes not, to be able, but, but at some point a decision has to be made as to what gender this person is going to be. We also know that both masculine and feminine, both male and female, are on a bell curve. So if the average man is in the middle of the bell curve and there's more masculine men on the other side of it and there's more feminine men on the other side of it, we know that that's the case. We know that there are, are, are some men who act more feminine and they do that from childhood. So we know that there's a bell curve and the same thing on the female side with fem some females that act more masculine than feminine. We know that there's a bell curve that happens there. What the Bible talks to us about is that if we're feminine, if we're, we're a woman, then we act like a woman. If we're a man, we act like a man. If there's a defect, then you gotta deal with the defect. You have to deal with it in the best way that you possibly can. And so sometimes people bring up these, these rare cases in order to try to make an argument for something. And instead of going, no, look, look, these are just, it's, it's, it's tragic, but there are conditions that do happen and things that people do go through and, um, and have to deal with. All right. So, uh, thank you. Thank you, Jari, for your follow-up. I think it's important to thank you for letting us know what AIS is. I appreciate that. Um, running into flat earthers. I'm struggling with their arguments. Um, let me just bring this in here. Long story says, um, running into flat earthers and I'm struggling with their arguments versus what I have believed my whole life. I have some, so many questions. They claim it is biblical cosmology and have so many scriptures. Um, so here's what I suggest, long story. The Bible does not teach a flat earth. Uh, the Bible uses phrases like the four corners of the earth and their idioms that were being used. And what I suggest that you do is go to um, Mike Winger's YouTube page and look on his video about the flat earth. He has a video on whether or not the Bible teaches the earth is flat. It's like an hour long video, but it's really, really good. And long story, it's really going to help you, okay? Um, and I, I haven't run into a lot of them. I listened to that study by him just because it, it interested me. I had never really done any, any look at the evidence for and against it. And he does a really good job of pointing out when there's idioms that are used and why one, one thing doesn't say this, what you might think it says. So it's going to give you a lot. And um, so that is, um, let me see if I can... Uh, let me see if I can find this really quick. Um, 
look up. Let's see. So I wish I had a, um, a way to show this to you. Let me think about this. Um, I think I might. Let me let me let me just look for something here real quick. I want to show you this video. I realize, I realize now you don't have to. Um, that you don't have to fill all the space up like you do when you when you are on the radio when you're doing a, a, a podcast because it's not dead air. Used to be when on radio you didn't want to have any dead air, so you were trying to always make sure you filled up all the time, and you don't have to do that now. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and show this to you. So this is the video, and let me see if I can get it to. All right. So this is the video by Mike Winger refuting those flat earth Bible verses uh, you should have uh, checked. So this is it. It's on YouTube. Um, it is evidence against global earth using... Uh, what? Um, <clears throat> yeah, it says um, refuting those flat earth Bible verses. Yeah, so that's the title of it. All right? So that's the, what the thumbnail is, and that's the title of it. And... Um, uh, you can go ahead and take a look at it. All right. So there, I found a way to show you. All right. Long story. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, I really do suggest, I mean, I strongly suggest that you go and watch that video. I think it really would be helpful. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Let's see. Uh, so we have a question from Cat Lou. Cat Lou says, um, while in the Garden of Eden, is it possible that Adam and Eve were able to swim with the whales? And, uh, yeah, the, you know, what's, ha what's happening now is I'm, I'm having a migraine right now. So right now, live on the air, I'm having a migraine. And when I have a migraine, I get a physical, like, like something moving in front of me and I can't see around it. So when you're trying to look at something, right at something, you're not able to really see it. And so that's happening to me right now. So um, I'm probably gonna go ahead and wrap up this up pretty quick. Um, go try to take care of this migraine. I gotta teach tonight in about a little bit over an hour. Um, but there's no way that I would know. I wouldn't think the Garden of Eden, they were able to go swim with the dolphins. I wouldn't think, um, but who knows, maybe we'll be surprised as to what they were able to do, all right? So I appreciate you guys. I know there's a couple other questions here. Um, I will take a look at this. I'll have um, Keith send it to me. Um, you guys can pray for me uh, that I go get rid of this uh, migraine quickly. Um, I, might, I may be able to do that before I have to teach tonight. It also messes with me a little bit with the way that I think. Um, when you're having a migraine, those of you who have migraines will understand that. Um, I haven't had one in a long time. But anyway, I'm having one right now. So I'm out. Okay, love you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Walk in the Spirit so that you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Delight in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. All right, good to see you guys. Good to have you here with me, and we will talk to you guys later on. All right, bye.